Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. I am in Qatar doing daily coverage of World Cup 2022. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you? Doing all right, sir. How was your day in Qatar? My day was really interesting, actually. I went as a fan to Spain, Germany, and ended up sitting in the German family section, like at midfield about five rows up. Wow. How did you manage that? (laughs) So my friend Mikey is in the soccer business, in the sponsorship business. And Mikey's one of these people that whenever you get together with Mikey, you never know what sort of adventure you're about to go on or who (laughs) you're about to meet. And I met him. We worked together at the 2014 World Cup in Brazil And Mikey's like this kind of guy who he ended up like with LeBron James one night in Brazil at the World Cup. Um, He's that type of a guy. He he just charms people, knows people, meets new people, and gets those people to do nice things for him. (laughs) I'm 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 jealous of the skill. I noticed like there are a few people that are in and around the orbit of like particularly like U.S. men's national team players. I'm sort of acutely aware of them because I follow a lot of U.S. men's national team players on Instagram. This is a skill that, (laughs) frankly, would be very valuable for my job, but I am severely lacking in. I do not have this ability to sort of befriend important people in, in, in in the way that like people like Mikey and people like others that I see on Instagram that are just sort of like the friends of famous people. That's a great gig. And... Uh, some people are very good at that. I, however, am not. Not not having the schmooze gene. No, I take it. not a schmoozer. I'm not a schmoozer. That's fair. Um, I just was the friend of the friend tonight, but we ended up at a German Federation event, uh, which happened to be at the U.S. Team Hotel, which is like the nicest hotel in Doha, and um, met some people there. And suddenly they bring out, they gave us all Germany jerseys that had the uh, game specific logo on the front that said, you know, Spain, Germany, and the date. And because we were sitting with them, I put it on. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) My grandfather was born in Germany, so I feel like I'm okay doing that. Um, I'm not the most vociferous Germany supporter, but um, it was pretty cool because we're sitting like amazing seats. Ilkay Gundawan's brother, Ilhan, who's also his agent, I know, was like, like right behind me. So caught up with him. A lot of the players, uh, wives and girlfriends uh, around. So we were some of the least attractive people in the section. <laughs> I disagree. Um, and then it got really quiet when they went down. But they got the equalizer, and Germany lives to fight another day, but is also thanking Costa Rica for beating Japan and keeping Germany in a better situation. They, you know, Starting the day, they could have been eliminated tonight. They, they are not. They are alive. And that was just, it was fun to go see a, a game as a fan and not have to work it. So that doesn't, I don't do that very often. I've been really going uh, pedal to the metal the entire time here work-wise, which has been fun. I enjoy all this stuff. Um, we should start by talking about the U.S. men's national team, which faces Iran in a must-win game on Tuesday to stay in the World Cup and advance to the knockout rounds. It's a must-tie game for Iran to advance, um, and that's going to make it an interesting game, I think. Um, before we get to the off-the-field stuff that happened today, 
do you have any thoughts just looking at this game itself that have come up to you since we knew the stakes? Yeah, I, I think for me, the thing that stands out is, you know, we, you go into this game having scored one goal in two games, having not won, which I don't think necessarily reflects poorly on the U.S.'s performance at this World Cup, but it could very well end after a nil-nil draw on Tuesday with the U.S. having scored one, one zero at the World Cup. And if you look at, upon reflection, that outcome, it looks really bad. And so, again, I, my, my fear is always going into a situation when the U.S. have to break down a team that we know is going to set up to defend. How are they going to do it? What is their method? And that usually sort of revolves around the situation at center forward. I actually think it could revolve around other areas of the pitch, um, just because maybe you can bring in a more creative player into that midfield. You have a ball carrier and a ball progressor in Eunice Musa. You have uh, something of a wild card midfielder in Weston McKinney, but you don't really have that string puller in the middle. Maybe this is a game where Giovanni Reina is not called on to replace Tim Weah, but start instead of Weston McKinney or start instead of somebody in that midfield where he can help be the unlocker of defenses. I think you actually probably need that more from a central area, but it also obviously revolves around the striker and how the decision to pick a number nine that can help you unlock teams can help really do anything because that position is so often starved. I don't know what the answer is. There's been sort of renewed calls for for the false nine to bring in you know one of the top attacking players into that position. There's also, I saw today, Alexi Lalas today on the Fox coverage was banging the drum quite a bit for Jesus Ferreira to start, which would actually live up to one of my pre-World Cup predictions, which is that the three group stage games would have three different starting strikers. And I think we might be on our way to that, although obviously Ferreira would have to start. And I don't know sort of where his level of favor is in the U.S. camp at the moment. But either way, those are things I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how is the U.S. going to approach the game in which they have to win? And also, what happens if they do go up 1-0? Do you protect it and try and defend and see out the result? Or do you actually try and be aggressive, go forward and try and get two when multi-goal wins have not come easily to this national team against opponents that aren't the level of Granada or or similar nations in CONCACAF? The U.S. has not really gone out and smacked teams very often. And so what is the strategy once you do get a lead, if indeed you do get a lead? No, these are all good points. Let me first say this. If they don't start Weston McKenney in this game of so much importance... That would be like the worst idea in the world. I, mm-hmm. I honestly think he his energy dictates so much for the U.S. team. And that would be coaching malpractice, in my opinion, not to start Weston McKinney. Um, pr- I would prefer, my preference would be Wea as the center forward, Giovanni Reina out wide. Um, it could be Aronson. I'd prefer Reina, but it could be Aronson. Uh, who I think would be good. I, I, I'm tired of the center forward revolving door and the lack of impact. And I just think in this game in particular, you need goals. You've got to win it. It's a different calculus, uh, different pressure. And you're right. There is a lot of variability in the outcome here. If the U.S. doesn't advance, that's just a massive, massive disappointment uh, of a World Cup. If they do advance, it's something completely different. And it's the opportunity to start an entire new tournament uh, in the knockout rounds and see how far the U.S. can take it. So a lot is riding on this game. And so it, it's, it, it feels so much like the Algeria game in 2010 and the U.S. waited until added time to, to score the winner in that one. And I already had written my three thoughts just killing them 
for being knocked <laughs> out of the World Cup. So I don't. No, nobody wants to to keep you know wait that long. And so you, you want to get a first half goal. You'd love to get an early first half goal, and at least put yourself in an advantageous position. Uh, I don't think we're going to see significant changes otherwise in terms of the lineup. I think the midfield has been solid. I think the back line has been solid. I think Matt Turner's been solid. Christian Pulisic. So, I mean, I mean, like, we're not talking about massive changes, but I do think maybe a, an approach also that is a little more risky um, in terms of uh, trying to score goals. You know, this is a different game than, than either of the first two games. So uh, I think they're all aware of this. Um, if you can't beat Iran, which I, a team I respect, but if you can't beat Iran, you don't deserve to be in the World Cup knockout rounds. That's how I look at it. Can I ask you a question? Because uh, you you sort of dismissed out of hand my notion of dropping Weston McKinney for this Terrible game. Terrible idea. I, <laughs> I saw that uh, Sam Stasko wrote a piece, and, and you wrote about him quite a bit in your piece off of this game. Since you guys are, are closer to it, I, I sort of struggle, while sort of watching the game and, and recognizing any impact, I have a difficulty understanding what exactly that impact is. You mentioned the word energy. What for you, from a sort of, I guess, granular footballing sense, is the thing that Weston McKenney brings to the game? Or would you have to sort of reach for, you know, vibes, energy, that sort of thing, that that added dimension on the right, the ability to, 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 to defend and attack? What would you say is the thing that you would say is sort of undroppable about his game? I think he covers a lot of ground uh, on both sides of the ball. When he's at his best, he's uh, a nuisance in in many, many ways. Um knows where to be on the field, knows how to get forward. Um, I thought he did a terrific job uh, out wider right than normal, uh, creating the overload that Burhalter wanted from him at times against England, uh, understanding the assignment. Um, he also harasses on defense. You know, Weston McKenney, like, it's a little like Tyler Adams, but like, you know, he just covers a lot of ground becomes a nuisance, very much a threat on set pieces, even though you need to get the deliveries right. Um, that's another reason, I think, to bring on a Giorena or an Aronson because they can take set pieces and, and you know, Christian Pulisic doesn't have to. Uh, I think that's all of that's important. But like, how many goals, important goals have we seen on set pieces by McKenney in big games, uh, headers, things like that, not just for the US, but with Juventus. So... I, I, I just feel like he's a bellwether player for this U.S. team. Now, we've also noticed that when he starts to get tired or is just not, it's not his game, he can be pretty bad. You know, there's even a couple of times during this tournament where like he'll go through a stretch when he's tired and you can tell he just loses balls, kind of one touches passes to nobody, things like that. And he sort of, you know, his focus is off. I don't think that will happen in this game, at least not until 70s and 80s minutes. And then, you know, he, you, know you got to remember, he hasn't really been playing 90 minutes heading into this tournament. So Berhalter needs to, I think Berhalter needs to go to a sub sooner. He's, he certainly didn't in the second game. And I don't know, I don't get it. I, I, I just, you know, I, I think he's got his deepest team that he's had in a long time because there's so few injuries with the U.S. team. And, and, it's it's sort of maddening to be honest. Yeah, and and, and we, we discussed that after the England game, and you know you, you hear a lot of discussion about other teams, and I think 
five substitutions has changed a lot of the calculus on how oh, yeah. we view changes and, and how we view how quickly you should go to them. And I wonder if managers have adjusted on the international level and on the club level they have because you coach week in, week out, and you're not necessarily under that same level of scrutiny when you play a club game on an, an October against Burnley as you are in the World Cup group stage. And managers have to get this stuff right. And I think, you know, Greg Berhalter was managing different circumstances back in World Cup qualifying. We sort of needed to make five changes between games in order to survive the third game. Whereas I do think the lack of travel allows for rest and recovery to be a bit different, but we saw the same players faltering in the first game as the second game. And I think it is sort of Greg Berhalter's job to get ahead of that. I understand that Serginho Dest just brings an element to the game that Shaq Moore nor DeAndre Yedlin can bring, and that's no fault of their own. They're different players, but from a skill set standpoint, it's massive for Dest to be on the field. That being said, him at 60% on his haunches because he's tired is not necessarily one that's helpful. Same thing for Weston McKinney. He sort of walks off uh, the whatever he is feeling from a physical standpoint. So the second you start to see them falter, you kind of have to pull them from the game. But I also understand the tendency to think, well, we have four full days in between these games. We'll play this kickoff on at 10 p.m. next Tuesday. We can rest and recover, and it's all about emptying the tank for now. It doesn't matter what happens next. But when you have five changes, you can afford to go early, and if you feel like you've made a mistake, adjust it quickly. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's certainly part of the math that I think a lot of coaches are getting used to. I saw Tata Martino was taking huge criticism for how he used subs against uh, against Argentina and how he didn't sort of adjust quickly enough to you know the game changing after Messi scored his goal. I think ultimately these coaches are still figuring it out, as weird as that is, because he, they didn't have a ton of time. And I think Greg Berhalter's very clearly drilled his 11 to do what he wants, but maybe hasn't drilled probably enough with, with the players behind them. Otherwise, he'd be using them more. I've seen also the cadence of these World Cup games compared to the three-game windows during CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. It's not close. It's not the same. For the reason you mentioned, on to start, they're in the same bed every night. They're not having to fly all over CONCACAF. So that's a, a huge difference. And two, there's actually one more day of rest between games here compared to the three-game windows in CONCACAF. So, and conditions aren't as extreme either. Correct. Um, so, like, that's why Greg Berhalter basically used his same 11 except for Haji Wright in game two as he used in game one. And, and I get that. I just want him to go to the sub sooner. Um, I think U.S. is going to win this game, by the way. I, I think I should say this. Uh, I think they're going to get the goal in the first half and, uh, and maybe get more as Iran has to start pushing forward into the second half. Um, that's my sense of how things are going to play out. We will see. Uh, but I think this U.S. team is, is going to, to rise to the occasion here. Uh, let's talk about what was going on Sunday. So U.S. soccer on its Twitter had posted a, an Iranian flag without the Islamic Republic symbol. A U.S. soccer spokesperson said that that was a uh, reference to supporting women's rights in Iran. We've talked about uh, the protests that have been taking place in Iran since September and the custody killing of Masa Amini, who um, had been detained for not wearing a hijab, uh, which is against the law there. And this turned into quite a thing uh, on, on Sunday because 
the Iranians didn't like it. And uh, one of their official news agencies said they were going to protest to FIFA. We haven't heard FIFA confirm that yet. Uh, By the end of the day, U.S. soccer had taken down the posts. So that's kind of where we are right now. And there was a, a, a press conference with Tim Ream and Walker Zimmerman where they were asked about, including by Iranian journalists who were upset that they weren't getting called on uh, until the end. And I do think, well, I, I, it's very well-meaning from U.S. soccer, and I agree with you know supporting women and women's rights in Iran. I don't know if this was the way to go about it. What's your sense? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I think this whole World Cup has been about what do we say and how do we say it and how do we do things that don't feel empty. And this is one where you don't even really get the benefit of having made a statement because I don't think people scrolling their Twitter feeds, you know, normal people, normal people that aren't following geopolitics closely, look at the Iran flag without the Islamic Republic insignia on it and go, oh, wow. U.S. soccer is making a brave statement in support of women. It's sort of a thing that happened that really pisses off the people that that it's meant to piss off, which I guess is sort of the point. But ultimately, they have not made a massive stance. Uh, you referenced in your you know in your column, your daily column. It was either yesterday or, or today. Uh, the work that Ashton Harris and Ali Krieger are doing uh, that is a Metal Arc production, by the way. So we encourage you to check out The Most Important Thing with Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger. But they were saying, why haven't the U.S. men said more? And I think, you know, not to not to give them a pass because ultimately each individual can inform themselves and say the right thing. But this is sort of the landmines of trying to make sweeping statements without really considering the fallout. I, I wonder how far this notion of putting the Iran flag as such reached within U.S. soccer. It was reported that Greg Berhalter... Uh, it didn't reach him. It didn't reach the players. And so you wonder sort of how far this reached out. Did Cindy Parlo Cohn give a thumbs up to tweeting out the Iran flag without uh, w- without the Islamic Republic insignia? I also, you know, this might be me having watched too many episodes of The West Wing on Netflix, but I really did get surprised when the State Department wasn't consulted because that's it's a really important thing in diplomatic relations with any country around the world that, you know, the U.S. is sort of on message. And it's not really on the U.S. Soccer Federation to be any more or not on message about a topic than the government of the country, unless there was somebody who has particularly well-educated or thorough viewpoints. So there was a lot of this that felt harebrained to me. And it's why I think political statements of this World Cup have been incredibly difficult, because even the one that was planned, the you know, the the one love armband that six or seven European uh, nations agreed to do. Clearly, they hadn't thought out all the consequences because it was banned by FIFA and they struck it down and they all were made to look weak and feeble in the face of criticism, basically to the people who you are meant to be protesting on behalf of saying, we don't think your cause is worth a yellow card. And that also looks terrible. So I think it's ultimately the very precarious position that FIFA has attempted to put themselves in by hosting this World Cup here. And a lot of countries are trying to do their best, but it very often comes off in a half-assed way. Yeah, I, I, I feel you on that. I also think that like, just knowing the way this works, so the US did this post on like Friday and it only came out on Sunday that they were asked about it by, I think it was... Uh, AP, I, I assume it's Ron Blum 
at the AP. And that's the point at which U.S. soccer decided to make their statement. I guess I don't like if you just want to make the statement that you're supporting women's rights, I don't see why you can't just say that, you know, in Iran, as opposed to doing something that very few, not many people are going to even recognize that you're doing it and know that you're doing it because of that reason. And you could also view it as just an anti Islamic thing if you're taking out the Islamic symbol. I know it's the Islamic regime symbol, and that's not the same, totally the same thing, but it, it can be interpreted that way. And so I think well-meaning, but probably not a great idea. And you know, what, one thing we've also seen with the Iranian Federation is they have a hair trigger to issue press releases when they feel like they've been wronged. So this is connected to Carlos Karos, their coach, in the response to what Jurgen Klinsmann said on the BBC about that's their culture and diving and Iran and Central American countries. And, you know, it's Jurgen Klinsmann shouldn't have said this because it made him look bad. I also don't think it's something that necessarily required official statements from the Iranian Federation and appeals to FIFA to fire Klinsmann from the techn technical committee of the, the World Cup. It seemed like an overreaction to me, to be honest. Uh, Jurgen said something stupid and should have apologized. I don't think he actually did. Um, so I'm not necessarily defending Klinsman here. I just thought the, the Iranian response was over the top. And it sounds like I, I was at the game tonight, so I didn't go to the, to the US press conference that the Iranian journalists were kind of over the top and being aggrieved about not being called on enough by, by US soccer. And so, you know, it can get complicated. I don't know if those journalists were state media or not. It's it's such a complicated situation right now with everything Iran. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens on, on Monday and, and Tuesday leading into the game. There's still a fair amount of time. Greg Berhalter has his usual match day minus one press conference at the media center on Monday. Carlos Karos does as well. And so I'm sure we're going to have more questions and we'll see how those are answered. Yeah, and again, this is, I mean, look, a lot of people who got into sports did not get into sports because they were savvy about geopolitics. They got into sports because they like sports as sort of this thing that uh, is, is sort of removed from the broader society and sometimes don't think uh, with enough a consideration about the broader society. So I think this is why some of these messages don't come out well. But I mean, ultimately, like you said, I mean, the Iranians really from day one I think Carlos Quiroz has sort of had this bunker mentality about, you know, everyone's out to get us and everyone's out to put us in a political lens. And uh, and that's, you know, starting with, you know, the players wanting to say things and the manager being asked to say things about the current government when you sort of represent the current government at the World Cup, which is difficult enough. Then you have the Jurgen Klinsmann thing. Then you have this thing. And it sort of feels like everyone is out to get us. And I mean, who knows? Maybe they're they're using that as ways to motivate their players when they step out of the field against the United States on Tuesday. It's, it's, it's a lot to handle uh, for him and for them. But like you said, they were, they were ready with the FIFA statute to throw them out of the World Cup and suspend the U.S. for 10 games. They were, they were prepared uh, the, 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 the second that this came out. So, um, yeah, th this is a really difficult one. It adds a layer to the game that, frankly, I, I can't prognosticate how it will affect the game or how it will uh, sort of affect the pregame or any kind of iciness between the players or even the players feel any of this. But it certainly has added a level of geopolitical, get the State, get the state Department involved intrigue that I did not expect this World Cup to have. 
Yeah. Uh, interesting day. No more U.S. players have to speak or going to speak uh, to the media uh, before the game. So they're sort of off the hook. Zimmerman and Reem drew the short straw tonight. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to, let's talk Mexico because I, I, they're in a tough spot now after losing to Argentina, Dos Acero. Great goal from Lionel Messi. Great goal from Enzo Fernandez. And I'm really disappointed that Tata Martino approached this game like he didn't think his team had a chance to win. And so we're going to play for a scoreless tie and we're not even going to play Edson Alvarez. Yeah. And Mexico, it's one of the few things that I've gotten right about this tournament. Have you, have you tried to do any predictions or do like any gambling predictions or anything like that? Because I have been horrendous <laughs> at this World Cup. I cannot for the life of me, if you try and sort of go off the basis of match day one, I mean, the Costa Rica result, I mean, there's been so many results that defied match day one. If you tried to, you know, develop a narrative about uh, Northern African countries that are closer to home or European countries that are informed because their players are in the middle of the season or European countries that are tired. Like they're, I, I find it very difficult to get my head around this World Cup and figure out any any themes. But one of the few things I got right ahead of the tournament was I did not think much of this Mexican national team. And I actually think they go out in the group stage not in the round of 16, as has been the case for the last several World Cups. And I think we saw a lot of evidence of that. And I think actually uh, Philippe Auclair, a French journalist, gave great voice to this on the Guardian Football Weekly when he was talking about how it is a football-mad country that has a good league, good resources, and the ability to have this an incredible wealth of talent, right? There's so many players that grow up in that country wanting to be professional footballers, and they have a thriving domestic league that in recent years has forced it's clubs to play kids under the age of 20. And yet you arrive at this World Cup and the starters are not impressive from an attacking point of view. The bench players are not impressive from an attacking point of view. I don't know where their next goal is coming from. I really don't. I don't understand how they're going to score a goal at this tournament. Never mind win the game. That'll get them out of the group. And like you said, I think Tata Martino might have even acknowledged that by picking a 5-3-2 against Argentina, basically saying, let's hope that the nerves of this Argentinian team will prevent them from being able to function normally in this game, that they'll lose the plot. And in some ways, Argentina was sort of on their way before the two touches of Lionel Messi that resulted in them uh, taking the lead and eventually winning that game and settling down. But, you know, I, I do think that Mexico were incredibly negative. I think because Martino has recognized that there's really not a lot about this team. There, there, there's not a lot about this team going forward. And there's really not going to be an answer by the time this tournament is over. And frankly, it will be somebody else's problem because Martino will not be around after this World Cup. Yeah, really disappointing for Mexico. That that game was weird. Like, and not actually that impressive from Argentina, even though they won. It seemed like their goals came out of individual efforts. But I, it's not like I'm feeling that much better about Argentina maybe winning the World Cup. I, it's two-game sample size, and maybe they can turn it around, but I'm just not seeing it right now. Mexico, wildly disappointing, and their fans deserve better. Their fans created that atmosphere to a large extent, even though Argentina's fans were awesome too. That's the best atmosphere at a game in this World Cup so far. Um, in terms of a couple of things you mentioned, I, I thought to crystallize it, there was a team that conceded seven goals in their opening game, Costa Rica, that won their following game. There was a team that conceded six goals in their opening game, Iran, that won their following game. There was a team that conceded four goals in their opening game, Australia, that won their next game. I would be curious if that sort of three circumstances has ever happened in a World Cup before, and it tells you how unpredictable 
all of this is, and you really cannot assume anything when it comes to a result. You know, Costa Rica being Japan saved Germany's ass today. Yep. And and it was funny being around all these Germans this afternoon, this evening, just how thankful they were for Costa Rica. They're still kind of tense about their team because um, it's it's been a, a slog, and and they did get the late equalizer tonight. Uh, anything stand out to you about that game? Yeah, I, I just think that the, the the Germans, I think, are a good team, and they've been a good team at this World Cup, despite the fact that they were unable to beat Japan on match day one. It's hard to sort of throw out results because ultimately you don't have that many chances to get through. You'll get three of them to get through to the next round. You kind of have to take advantage of one and a half of them. So uh, the Germans got the half today uh, in their draw against Spain, but at the same time, you know, I, I think you see the talent that's out there. When Leroy Sané came on, there was a real spark about that team. And Jamal Musiala has sort of been everything that you'd hope for, except for, I mean, when Kylian Mbappe broke out at the World Cup four years ago, he was scoring tons of goals. And there are some players at this World Cup where you see their breakout potential, but it doesn't result in end product or goals. And there was one moment in particular where I thought Musiala was in. He had gotten in behind. He takes a, the, the shot on that forced a good save out of Unai Simon, but... The square ball was right there. It would have led to an easy tap-in for Germany, and, and they would have scored. So that that decision-making in the vital moment is still really important. I think it, that was a great game. I loved that sort of contrast in styles where both teams are trying to have the ball. But uh, I, I think my, my feeling on that game is I think Germany are going to get through. I think they'll beat Costa Rica. Uh, Spain will take care of Japan. And ultimately, the two favorites that we thought were going to get out of that group are going to get out of that group. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um Canada, our neighbors to the north, go up early uh, tonight against Croatia and then just get the doors blown off them. Uh, and I missed that game entirely. What happened? Yeah. So, if, you know, Canada, you know, John Herdman, their coach, said after uh, they lost to Belgium, we are going to F Croatia. <laughs> uh, and, you know, basically saying we feel confident that after we play this well against Belgium, we'll carry this on and we'll, you know, beat this team. But, they sort of poked a team in the eye that I'm not sure is one you want to be poking in the eye. And the thing about this game was that Canada came out on fire. First minute and a half, Alfonso Davies scores. Great goal, headed in back post. Croatia dominated the next 88 and a half minutes. And Canada, yeah, they had their chances and, and they looked okay in moments. But ultimately, this was a game that Croatia was in complete control of. And it was kind of cool because I, I've always said that the World Cup is a tournament of blue bloods. And you see, you know, if you if you try to pull something like that against France or against Germany or against Spain or Brazil or Argentina or these countries that have won the World Cup before, you would it would sort of carry that extra bit of significance. Oh, you're 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 smiting one of the big powers. Well, Croatia kind of asserted themselves today, and that generation of Croatian players that got them to the World Cup final four years ago cemented themselves as a generation of players, as a country that is not to be messed with. That. You poke us in the eye and we will smack you aside because ultimately you guys are the new kids on the block. You're the ones who haven't been here since 1986. You cannot be the ones that are trying to provoke us in a game of world football because Canada, for as, much, for as cool as their story is, they've done nothing. And Croatia went to the World Cup final. And it was kind of interesting that another country could sort of be added to that pantheon of, oh no, you don't, you don't have a go at this team because... They will take care of you. And Croatia was ripping them apart. I thought actually Milan Borjan did well to keep them in this game for long stretches, considering how dominant Croatia were. And eventually they got the fourth that I think their performance deserved. But for John Herdman, it was kind of cool 
to see how brash he was, how confident he was in his team. But I, that brashness and that confidence might have gone just a step too far. And ultimately, you are facing an incredibly strong and good team. I like Swagger, but Swagger can come back and bite you in the rear. And I think it did in this case for John Herdman. And we'll see if he, he takes that as a learning experience. I expect he'll remain in that job because... You know, he got them to the World Cup. They won the CONCACAF qualifying tournament. And yes, this World Cup is very disappointing. They're out after two games, one of the first teams to be eliminated. And yet Canada did show some things, especially in the game against Belgium. Belgium, by the way, losing today, 2-0 to Morocco. Um, they were awful, by the way. Yeah, I mean, like, that's that's concerning. Like, I, I maybe I picked the wrong oldish team in that group to struggle because I thought Croatia would be that team, and it's actually Belgium. It looks like potentially. Yeah, and Croatia. I I almost wonder if they were sort of awoken by Canada scoring early uh, because they did not start the game well. They didn't really play that well in the first game either against Morocco, who I think might might have been an underrated team on the basis of how they've performed so far uh, in, in in their first two games. But I think uh, Croatia sort of needed to be awoken, and they were, and they were fantastic in this game. But Belgium, that's worrying because, you know, people can say, oh, they got old, and you can criticize them for any number of things, and maybe this golden generation has just sort of reached its end point. But I've seen them play in the Nations League. I've seen them play as the number one country in the world. I've seen them play in World Cup qualifiers. I know it's not always against the strongest competition. I know what that team at its free-flowing best can look like. They were on the brink of hammering Wales in a Nations League game that I saw in September. This is not a team that just sort of got old fast. It's a team that just, for whatever reason, has not found it uh, from within themselves to perform well at this World Cup, to play with flow, to play with style, and... I don't know how and I don't know why Roberto Martinez is starting to come in for some criticism, but uh, Belgium has just completely laid an egg here. Yeah. My final, by the way, my predictions was uh, Argentina-Belgium. So pat- not exactly patting myself. Not over that. yet, though. Not over not, yet, though. It's actually not over yet for either team. I'm just, we have, we're starting to get a little bit of an idea, 180 yeah. minutes about some of these teams, but maybe 270 will help. Anything else you want to add, Chris? Uh, no, I, I, I do. I do want to get uh, my prediction on the record. I, I actually don't think the U.S. are going to get out of the group. Oh, my God. I, I think they're going to draw 1-1 on Tuesday. I think that game is tougher than you think. And I think uh, the, the U.S. are really going to struggle and it. it's going to be a bear and we're going to be doing a, a postmortem on Tuesday. I hope I'm wrong, but that, that's sort of the sinking feeling that I have at the moment. All right. So we have differing predictions. That's a good thing. We're not in lockstep here. And uh, we'll see which prediction ends up coming true. Maybe none of them will come true and the U.S. will lose the game, but that would be sort of <laughs> more in line with your prediction. It would be catastrophic as opposed to just bad. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. you.